Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. The global mobile wallets like Alipay and WeChat Pay and Facebook's doing one, Amazon's doing one, Google's doing one, they could end up replacing all the different other types of payment processing. So those are the only ones left. That's the dystopian future that I'm warning people of. It's already starting to happen in developing countries. They are closed systems. But in the the payment world, what that means is you can only transact with someone else that also has an account at Alipay or at Facebook. So the bigger they grow, the stronger the argument is for them to grow even bigger and to get even more of the market. And they push out all the other players. If you can't transact with someone, then you switch to a system in which you can. That's the worry. Hello, and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co-host and colleague at the Public Banking Institute. Those opening remarks of warning are provided to us from the man who designed Visa's debit card system about 20 years ago. His name is Nick Brown, no relationship to Ellen. He's the founder of a new enterprise called Clear Purchase, and now he's turned his technical genius to helping ensure public oversight or perhaps, if you will, democratic leverage, to see that it's included in the field of emerging mobile digital uh, digital transactions. His warning raises questions such as, are emerging privately owned electronic payment systems destined to transcend government monetary systems? Are the corporations who oversee the vast numbers of mobile transactions acquiring a de facto supranational ability to impact local and even national economies? Can they, as ginormous corporations, be reeled in to respond to public needs and other concerns, or or will they be able to ignore public oversight? We'll hear Ellen's conversation with Nick Brown in just a moment. And later in the program, we'll have a conversation with one of our favorite guests, Dr. Robert Hockett, about how and whether the Fed can provide the money needed for infrastructure investment. Well, Ellen, those are rich topics for our show today. And you just published a powerful article about the impact of technology on mom and pop capitalism. Do you see any overlap between these? Well, um, and actually, I I call that uh, (laughs) how America went from mom and pop capitalism to uh, technocratic feudalism. So technocratic feudalism is uh, digitalization and all the all the uh, high class gadgets that we have today and that that we quite like. We were all rather addicted to them. But uh, they are, in a certain sense, enslaving us, or or we are captured by them. Uh, we don't really have control over them. In other words, uh, so capitalism originally, our our better vision of capitalism was as an escape from feudalism. When we originally set up our our uh, democracy, 
in the United States. We thought we were breaking away from feudalism, but we now have what has been called techno-feudalism, where basically a few very wealthy people control the shots or big corporations control the shots. And we, the people, don't have much say. It's not like when we were in small villages and we had our one uh, our little business, which was the only one in town. So there was really no one to compete with and, uh, or the farmers had their own little farms and their families. And so we have a totally different setup today where we're, we are dependent on the state in many ways for where I live, we're in the big city, you know, we're certainly dependent on, we don't have our own water. Well, I don't have a, I don't have farmland, et cetera. I'm totally dependent on what, <laughs> what is provided out there. And, and so we like technocracy in many ways. We've kind of been captured by it too, but, but we wanna make sure that it serves the people. And right now it pretty much serves big business or control is in the hands of big business and very wealthy people, yeah. multi-billionaires. And I think that's what Nick's point is and as your, article, as your conversation, which we're gonna to get to right now, uh, indicates is that corporations are taking an outsized role uh, in these affairs, in these relationships between people. Um, so let's go uh, listen to your conversation with Nick Brown and uh, let him expand on this. Thanks, Ellen. Thank you. My guest today is Nick Brown, founder of Clear Purchase, a payment switch specifically designed for developing countries. So, Nick, it's great to talk to you, and you'll have to explain to us what exactly that means. What is a payment switch? Okay, uh, well, yeah, I'm a, like a super geek in the payment world, and I've done pretty much everything you can do in the rails of the payment world. Uh, and a payment switch, all you really have to do is think of these Visa, MasterCard, or payment switches, they are hubs in a wheel connecting all the banks together. Um, so th that is a, like different people have different terms for it, but payment switches is one of the more common names that most people will recognize what we are referring to. Okay, great. And you're in San Francisco and you actually come from Scotland, I understand, and you're in the, the real banking world, but we're very interested in payments and certainly payments on, for developing countries and poor countries and poor people, which is your focus. So I just wrote an article and you wrote in response, you sent me your article on the threat that uh, is now being posed to financial institutions in general, including things like M-Pesa in, in Kenya, you know, local payment systems. Uh, that you said that this sci-fi fantasy of a dystopian future is upon us or nearly upon us. And I, you know, a lot of people are talking about that, but in different ways, but you're talking about in the actual payment system that we've got Google and Facebook and, um, you know, the big techies are about to take over the payment system. And what we could wind up with is something like Alipay and WeChat Pay in China, and it will squeeze out the local payment systems, et cetera. So can you explain further <laughs> what the threat is? Well, yes, the, uh, uh, the, a lot of people are talking about the power of big tech and um, what we should be doing about it. Should we be regulating it? And the next question is, can we regulate them? 
Um, and that, that, is, that is worrying for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. However, as I'm in the payment industry, there is another story that's going on that most people are not aware of, and they, they don't know to look for it. But I do because it's my industry. And what's happening is the big tech companies are starting to um, enter, and some of them have been in it for a while, payment processing. And we're not really that aware of it because it's happening mostly in developing countries. Um, and okay, but can I stop you? So payment processing, you're talking about actually paying for things with your cell phone, right? That type of thing. This is, yes, this is how That's they're doing it. They are, okay. payment processing covers a lot of different possibilities. And I use that term very deliberately because uh, the global mobile wallets like Alipay and WeChat Pay and Facebook's doing one, Amazon's doing one, Google's doing one. Uh, they could end up replacing all the different other types of payment processing. So those are the only ones left. That's the dystopian future that I'm warning people of. And it, it may be a big step that that to see that that will happen. But the reality is, is it's already starting to happen in developing countries. Uh, you look at China. No one uses cash anymore. You've got Alipay and WeChat Pay are the only ones left. And they're now branching into other countries. Most developing countries do not have the type of sophisticated payment infrastructure that we have here. So there's nothing to stop them. That's the worry. And they're private and they're corporate. I mean, they're not, there's no democratic, um, you know, oversight, right? Yeah, it's actually even worse than that. They are closed systems. That may not mean a great deal, but in the, the payment world, what that means is you can only transact with someone else that also has an account at Alipay or at Facebook. So the bigger they grow, the stronger the argument is for them to grow even bigger and to get even more of the market. Um, so as they grow, they get more powerful and they get more dominant and they push out all the other players. If you can't transact with someone, then you switch to a system in which you can. That's the worry. And, and you pointed out that what they can do then is um, competitors, they could just switch off basically. You know, if your only choice is these few, this handful of private payment systems, they can turn you off for what, whatever reason they want. I mean, oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, the, 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 the problem is, is that they actually offer a really good service and they offer it pretty much free. Who wouldn't want to use it? Uh, the trouble is if they end up dominating it, we're not talking about a Visa or a MasterCard, which has their service they provide and they don't go beyond it. And therefore everybody works well together. Um, they, are, they, are all, they all have a history as big tech of moving into a new industry and taking over. Well, if they control the payment processing, all payment processing, they move into an industry, they just shut off the competitors. How can you do business if you can't get paid? That's a real potential. And that's what scares me more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So that's the dystopian future that- It is. That I mean, look at this. Yeah, my sarcastic comment is, well, these, these companies don't have any history of, of moving into new industries, do they? <laughs> the reality is they've been doing it for a long time and they're very, very good at it. And this would give them the golden ticket. 
And you pointed out that something like Facebook, I mean, Amazon has a, it could be regulated, but Facebook can't really be regulated because it doesn't even have a country. I mean, it's. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've been in a lot of conversations, including with the UN about regulating and at a very basic level, you can't regulate a company that doesn't want to be regulated unless you have the stick that goes with it. And with a company like Facebook that doesn't need to have a physical presence anywhere, what kind of threat do you present? How can you force them to do anything? You can take them to court, you can fine them, and they'll just sit there and do nothing. They'll carry on. That's the worry. Whereas, as you said, Amazon actually is in the business of delivering product. So they have to actually have a presence in every country. They can be regulated, but none of the others need to be. And so what solutions do we have if we, you know, regulation? I mean, ideally, we could do antitrust, you know, break up the big tech. I, I think that's a great idea if it could be figured out. But you, your, your business basically is to offer a, an alternative that, so that, well, maybe you can explain, so to offer something that is not being offered or wouldn't be offered by a Facebook digital currency. Yes. Yeah, they... Um, the, the basic solution I see is to have pretty much the infrastructure we have here in the West and get it in developing countries, because that's the, that's the opportunity that they are already going after, is developing countries, and specifically the poorest people in developing countries. You can't offer a bank account to someone earning $2 a day. The banks will lose money doing that. They can't do it viably. Um, that's where M-Pesa appeared, mobile money. It was unbelievable how successful it was, and all the other cell phone providers are copying them. Uh, and so those are some very basic financial services, like you have an account, you can pay a couple of bills, you can send money to someone. Well, they know they can't compete against Alipay. And the, the reason is that with Alipay, anyone with a phone can have an account. With M-Pesa, you can only have an account if you, are, if you have a, a Safaricom phone. And you can only transact with other people that also have a Safaricom phone. You can't compete with Facebook or Alipay. Um, so the only solution is to have that infrastructure, the behind the scenes systems that connect all the different players together. If, if we are to avoid five or six big players left, then we need to have all the other smaller players talking to each other really smoothly. We have to have every kind of transaction that Facebook offers M-Pesa um, has to offer. And even then that's not going to be enough because Facebook is cool. Facebook's offering a great service. They integrated into social media. Um, all you can, the way to beat that, not beat it so much, the way to compete with them is to offer something that Facebook doesn't. And that's where I come in. Uh, that's where we, we take the visa model of a guarantee on purchases and we present that to people earning $2 a day on their 10 cent purchase. Now you've got a reason for people to want to stay with M-Pesa. So, but how could they afford to offer that sort of guarantee? Don't they have to um, come up with the, the goods if well, somebody's engaging in fraud? Yes, um, well, that, that's a really good question because the, uh, the whole game when it comes to payment infrastructure, the, the, the rails or interoperability is what people are calling it now, which is actually a really good name really good work descriptor of it. So inter the 
financial systems connecting to each other and, and transacting between them. Um, that, that whole game is about managing and minimizing payment fraud. We've been, we know all about that here in the West with credit card fraud. Um, it's an ongoing battle. And the, the consequences of that, of course, is that there is a, a merchant transaction fee. Uh, they pay generally around 2.5% of every transaction. However, there's also a minimum fee. And that doesn't mean anything in this country. However, if you have a 25 cent minimum fee on a 10 cent purchase, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So again, this is where like, I'm, I build those systems. I, I know how to build the payment rails. I've done it before. Uh, I built Visa's global debit card system in 96. I've done pretty much everything you can do in the rails of these systems, including writing national and international data security standards for the payment system. Um, What I've, I'm an, it's a very, very small, specialized, incredibly specialized world, but I've also, I'm an innovator as well. I've, I've got a different model that makes it viable to do 10 cent purchases and include purchase guarantees. And that doesn't mean anything unless you have dispute resolution as well. And so I have that integrated into the very rails that I'm building now. What that means is M-Pesa, for example, can offer tiny purchases to their customers. They can go and say to their customers, don't switch to Facebook. You can only do funds transfers there because that's all these guys are doing. And that's all they need to do is just a funds transfer. We offer purchases, which really means we offer purchase guarantees on your transactions. Stay with us. And people will want to find a reason to stay because they like M-Pesa. They've done amazing things for people. So that's the real thing. I can provide the infrastructure for tiny transactions, including tiny purchases and down to 10 cents. Let's say that's a nice round number with purchase guarantees and integrated dispute resolution. And part of the conversation, and this is is relevant when I'm talking in developing countries, is that they're going, well, why? What's the matter? Why is that important? Why is a purchase different from a funds transfer? The reality is, is that when you do transactions with cash, it doesn't matter. It's face to face. But they're all getting smartphones now. They're all buying things remotely. When you buy something remotely uh, and you get an empty box, what do you do? Now you need dispute resolution. That's why you need a guarantee on a purchase. Uh, Cryptocurrencies don't offer it. Funds transfers don't offer it. Um, uh, Mobile money doesn't. Uh, Alipay doesn't, Facebook doesn't. Um, You've got to have a purchase guarantee in order to be able to do remote purchases. And that has to include dispute resolution. And so that's what Visa and MasterCard offer. Um, And they are very good with that on their credit card transactions. Um, But you can't go to the tiny transactions with those. That's where I come in. I've got the system that can do that. Wow. Um, I, I had a dispute once with, the, you know, a merchant and it was all these things that they had promised and they hadn't done. And so I disputed it with Visa and some night, you know, she, I sent all my records and emails, you know, a long list of emails and, and she ruled in my favor. I thought that was really cool. It was kind of like a, um, you know, a jury that was <laughs> a jury of your peers. It's this type of thing. You know, it's nice. She's just an ordinary person, but she must have put a lot of time into it if she read all my stuff. So wouldn't that be a bit expensive doing dispute resolution? Well, 
And that's part of the, yeah, that's part of the challenge as well. If you're dealing with uh, $500 purchases, you can have someone on the phone dealing with that. Um, I'm walking into a world where it's a 10 cent purchase. So 99% of the dispute resolution in the system that I'm working on, that I'm building is automated. It has to be that way. And only if it cannot be resolved through multiple steps, do you end up actually getting a person on the end of the line that's going to make a judgment on it. But the, the, the system is designed to encourage you to find a resolution between the two parties. But one of the things that's, one of the things that's actually also very relevant in developing countries is that when you were talking about raising a dispute, you didn't bring it, raise it with Visa, you raised it with your bank, Bank of America, let's say. Bank of America dealt with the issue through intermediaries with the other bank on the merchant side. Um, and that's the structure that was set up over time by Visa and MasterCard, and it works really well. Um, you get banks in developing countries and you get MPASA, they don't know how those systems work. They don't know what's expected of them. So one of the things I've done is I've recognized that, well, maybe I take on that job. I'll take on the dispute resolution. So you don't have to, but I know what's involved because I've worked on those systems for Visa and MasterCard and the banks, like that dispute resolution system. I know what's involved in it. So I know how to build it in a way that works because it does work here. So I'm taking on with this as much of the work as I can so they don't have to uh, in a, in large part because they, they don't know what's involved right now and why make them if I can do it for them. So that's part of this as well. Uh-huh. And you, you had mentioned that uh, Brazil, in Brazil, I guess they've approved it. Is it a WhatsApp? Yes, there was a, there was a big conversation in the payment world over the last six months is that uh, uh, Facebook, and um, with their product WhatsApp was going into Brazil to try and get WhatsApp payments approved. And they were going in with Visa and MasterCard. Now I told Visa and MasterCard, you realize that Facebook's gonna drop you the moment they get in or as soon as it's convenient for them. And they're just using you as a Trojan horse to get in um, because they, they don't care about, because the, the idea is, is that WhatsApp payments in Brazil would offer their customers if they have a bank account basically the ability to have a debit card on that, which they can use through WhatsApp. That's not Facebook's longer term goal. Their longer term goal is that you actually have an account with Facebook, with WhatsApp. The money is there, it's not in a bank, but they needed to get in the door. And I've been talking with some people in Brazil and you'd have, um, you'd have a mobile wallet that's after five years has like 3 million customers and that's really impressive. Well, WhatsApp has already has 120 million customers in Brazil. How do you compete with that? They just switched them all on and now they have 120 million and you have 3 million after all the hard work you've done. It, it's like, you can't win. That's the worry is that they, they're not walking in with nothing. They're walking in with massive user base that they already know their customers. And it's fine that they do that. But don't let them control your money as well. Watch or more specifically, don't let them control everyone's money. That's the issue, it's not just yours, it's everyone's. That's the problem, because then everyone else disappears. Mm -hmm. And you point out that, um, that Facebook is actually, what they want is your information. They're not, I mean, the reason they can afford to give this away for free is that 
they there's another product that they're aiming at, which is not necessarily exchange of goods. They just do advertising and such. Yes. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, is that mobile wallets like Facebook is going to eventually have and like Alipay and WeChat uh, pay are. I mean, that you do you transact with other people that have an account with them. You have a free account. It's great. You can transact for almost nothing. Well, that's easy because it's just an, inter- an internal accounting change. There's no interchange fees. There's no um, infrastructure behind the scenes connecting your bank with their bank because everyone banks with Facebook, let's say. So they can offer it really inexpensively because it doesn't cost them much. But underneath it all, and, and this, is where, this is where it's important to understand what's, what the, the real bigger picture is that with Facebook, you're not the customer. You're the product. They are selling you to their advertisers. You are the product. By offering you great services and free services, they get to sell you to their uh, business customers who are buying advertising. Uh, What does that really mean? It means that they're quite happy to, to give you free stuff, even lose a little bit of money in exchange for which they make money by selling you. And they want to therefore know as much about you as possible and control you as much as possible. But I'm sure they would never dream of doing that now, would they? I don't know if you notice the sarcasm. <laughs> it might not come across well with my uh, British accent. I think anybody listening already gets it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, you had mentioned about uh, India Stack and... Um, that India stack went wrong for some reason. I, I've written about that and talked about that before. I'm mostly focused on what they did with UPI because it was actually a really good move for them to go ahead and do something like UPI and everyone connected to it. It's like a- So UPI was- uh, but UPI is basically a, a payment hub that was connecting the mobile wallets together, including Google Pay, though it was under TAS when, that was the, when they were doing that. They changed it to Google Pay later. But everyone was, everyone was connecting to one system that run by the government that was transacting between them. And great idea. Uh, in effect, that's what I'm doing with Clear Purchase. Uh, the trouble is, is that um, it has some problems with it. And the, the problems are, are completely understandable. But the reality is, is that they really didn't have anyone involved who really understood uh, how these systems work. Um, that have really worked through the the core of these systems. I'm one of those people, there are others as well. I'm one of the people that has. And so they didn't realize that the the game was payment fraud and uh, it's all about minimizing and managing the fraud. And so you design it from the foundations up in order to manage that and keep it to a minimum so that other people don't have to worry about it because that's your job, you do that. Uh, And so it's having issues and Nothing against them. It's like, why they wouldn't? Why would you even think you would need someone with that level of expertise? You wouldn't, unless you're in the industry. Then you'd realize how important it is. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's having some problems, which is a really good idea. Um, and it's certainly, it's certainly building up the understanding of what it is. And it, it'll they'll work on it. But at some point, um, a better system needs to um, come in and can replace it. And I'm obviously hoping that that will be mine. 
Yeah. Well, we would love to see set up. Of course, we're into public banking and and everybody's worried about the sci-fi monster, you know, that's about to take over or, you know, the globalization, centralization. I mean, what a lot of people talk about is some sort of local system, like a local community currency that was digital or it seems to me the state of California, I mean, we're so broke in this state and every state is, but particularly California and, you know, some of the bigger states, we should be able to issue our own currency that we, we did or something like currency, you know, some sort of credits. We've done it before, issued warrants, but they were basically debts and we have debt ceilings and all that stuff to deal with. But the states originally issued before there were states, you know, when they were colonies, they issued their own money and that worked out pretty well. Of course, they did hyperinflate. But anyway, have you ever thought through any of those possibilities? <laughs> no. Probably. Oh, no, I, yeah, I do. I think about that a lot. Um, there are, uh, I, I love new ideas. I'm a tech guy, but I love new ideas. Anything to do with technology, anything to do with banking, because that's my industry. Um, and to a great extent, I look and say, well, you know what? what if we try things and see what works? And to a great extent, that's what happens in developing countries, which is where M-Pesa came from, is it's something that really worked well. They actually saw something that no one else did. And good for them, they made it work. Can, um, you, can you explain it a little bit? For oh, yes, sorry, M-Pesa was, uh, it sort of grew organically, but basically the idea was for people that had never seen technology in their entire lives, they got a phone for the first time. And they loved it, people were going crazy. They, they bypassed all the, all the stages of, of innovation and they got onto a cell phone because nothing before that would work for them. And it was amazing. And then they started allowing you to basically have an account with them that you could keep your money in. And they called it M-Pesa, M for mobile, and Pesa is Swahili for money. Um, and um, it was so successful. You had these people that had never seen any technology and they jumped all over it. I mean, they soaked it up. They were desperate for something like that. And, the, and what they showed more than anything is if you give people that have nothing and know nothing, as far as we're concerned, if you give them just a little smidgen of something, they will make 10 times more of it than we would ever imagine. Uh, and it became so popular. I mean, pretty much everyone in Kenya has uh, an M-Pesa account. Uh, and M-Pesa now is on in like eight countries uh, beyond Kenya now. So. They've grown really well, but it, no one thought it was going to work. I mean, how about, how about this as a business model? Hey, let's give bank accounts to people earning $2 a day. I'm sure we can make money doing that. Well, they did. That was a crazy business model, but it worked. And it worked unbelievably well. So everyone, all the other cell phone providers are copying them and good for them. Trouble is they're all closed. I'm coming along. I can connect them all together so they can transact with each other. That's where I come in. Uh, but they did amazing stuff. And it doesn't mean that they just tried one thing and did it. They've been trying 50 different things and a few things have worked um, and it, they've, they've blossomed. Innovation is not happening in this country. We're afraid of it in the banking realm in this country. And there's a good reason why you should be tentative, but to not do anything is, um, well, I'm sad about that obviously because I love new ideas. Um, but we're allowing the rest of the world to be the innovators in, in banking and in payments. And there's no real reason for that. We just need to be careful about it. And so the idea of cryptocurrencies and local currencies, um, I love all of those ideas. Um, I, I build the backbone, though, the rails. So 
my idea, my ideal is to facilitate whatever people want to try and then you let things that work succeed and you let things that don't work fail. I, I can maybe streamline it a little bit. Uh, and it's a matter of being involved in those conversations. And I'm involved in a few in this day. Um, but it, it's like, I love the ideas that are happening and to be able to actually um, show that there is, there are some alternatives out there. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back on something that's really important. We, if these global mobile wallets really start taking over in developing countries, it'll get, they'll get to the shore at some point. And by the time it does, it'll be too late because the rest of the world will all be using it and we will have no choice but to do the same. Uh, innovation is not happening here. But if we can open the door a little bit, just a little bit, be careful with it, but a little bit to innovation, maybe it can start here again. Maybe we can start coming up with some ideas and prove them here and then start pushing them out to the rest of the world, which is the way things used to be for um, the United States and especially for California. Wow, that's really interesting. And it's, it's great to get your perspective on all that. Uh, so do you have any, can you tell us where people can find your work and any last thoughts? Uh, yes, well, I, you can find me on, uh, generally I communicate on LinkedIn. I don't do other social media, to be honest. Um, <laughs> Nick Brown, Clear Purchase is the company. You can go to clearpurchase.com. Um, uh, there is a lot of information there that you probably don't want to go through, but you can pick and choose some of it. I've tried to make it as accessible as possible. Like I've done a lot of webinars and I've got a little index and clips from them. I've written some documents as well that may be of interest, especially if you're in the payment industry. Um, but, um, but basically what I'm, I'm looking at this whole thing with big tech and I see that the importance of stopping this. I'm a science fiction reader and watcher. And when we look at science fiction 100, 200 years into the future, there are no governments left. There are no little businesses left. There are five or so big corporations. And I'm really, really worried that their movement into uh, mobile global payment systems, payment processing, they could actually dominate it. And that to me is the golden ticket for that, that dystopian future to happen. So if you are, as I am, really worried about that potential, um, then I'm very interested in hearing from you. Uh, I'm looking to basically put a movement together to say, hey, look, we need to stop this from happening with um, individuals, but also companies. I'm looking for companies that want to say, we're going to do really badly if that happens. We want to join in. So I'm looking for companies that uh, say, we want to stop that from happening. We want to be part of what it'll take to do that. And we'll figure out how each part, each player is what they're going to be doing in the future. But let's, let's get people together that want, want to stop that dystopian future from happening. I like that word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. That's great. Okay. Thanks, Nick. And good luck with your work. All right. Thank you. I've been speaking with Nick Brown, founder of Clear Purchase, a payment switch specifically designed for developing countries. Uh, it's my pleasure to be speaking with Robert Hockett, who probably needs no introduction for our audience, um, a member of our 
Public Banking Institute Advisory Board. He's a uh, law professor at Cornell University, a graduate of uh, Yale and Oxford, and has clerked for the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals and has advised for the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve and uh, Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So, Bob, it's great to be talking to you again. So good to be on with you again, Ellen. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't call that the least of my credentials. I think being affiliated with you and Walt uh, with the Public Banking Institute is like one of the, it's one of my proudest affiliations by far. So, um, thank you. And you're one of our proudest affiliations. So, you recently wrote an article which really piqued my interest because uh, it looks to me like it could solve a number of problems that we have with our public banks. It's called Labor's Capital, Why and How to Put Public Capital at the Service of Labor. So by Labor's Capital, you are basically talking about the people's money, which is what our currency is. And the problem we've had with all our public banks is state banks, and we've I've written uh, in support of the National Infrastructure Bank bill introduced last year as um, HR 6422 and is based on the Reconstruction Finance Corporation model. But the problem we all have is liquidity. Like where do we find the money to pay the, <laughs> the outgoing checks? So we know that banks create money uh, on their books uh, when, or depository banks do at least. But the problem is that when, when the check's clear, you still have to have the reserves somewhere to move from one side of your account to another, to the other bank's account. And so could you explain, you've talked about how we could go back to the Fed's original model, and that wouldn't even necessarily take congressional action, that it's already in the Federal Reserve Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, so the, so the original vision of the Fed that a lot of people just don't happen to know, and there's, you know, there hasn't been much reason to know, I suppose, until recently. Well, actually, there's been reason to know for a long time, but the reason to know has become much more urgent now, let's say, than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's this, right, that the Fed was meant to be a kind of cross-national, regionally responsive and attentive, basically network of regional development institutions or development finance institutions, right? Um, And you can see that even in the kinds of paper, commercial paper and other forms of issuance that the Fed was prepared to monetize, right? In other words, to purchase (laughs) with with money that it itself issues. Um, The principal form of monetization uh, with which people are at least passingly familiar now is the monetization of treasuries uh, and some, of course, mortgage-related instruments ever since the last crisis. Um, And so when the Fed announces that pursuant to, say, QE3, it's going to buy a certain amount of mortgage-related instruments every month, it's basically telling us it's going to monetize those particular issuances, right? Those particular credit instruments will be convertible into money, which is just Fed credit instruments, right? Federal Reserve notes, short for promissory notes. Um, And, you know, apart from that or before that, it was primarily treasuries for a long time. But originally, the way the Fed functioned and the way the regional Fed uh, reserve banks or the the so-called district banks were meant to function was to monetize commercial paper in a similar way. But the commercial paper had to have certain attributes 
And the one- Sorry, great. so can you define commercial paper for- Yeah, for this is just, these are just short-term instruments that basically credit instruments that are issued by private sector companies, right? Um, in the early 20th century, the thought was these would be sort of what we would today call startup companies, right? Sort of smallish firms that seem to show promise as the beginnings of new industries, green shoots that might one day grow into productive forests that we're glad that we have, that kind of thing. And it was understood, right, that credit is often in short supply when it comes to those kinds of firms, particularly given the concentration of the American financial system up in the Northeast by that point in 1913, right? It was largely a New York game, to some extent a Boston and Philadelphia game, but primarily a New York game then. It was understood that this tended to result in inadequate credit going out to the far west, California, but all spaces in between New York and California as well. And the original designers of the Federal Reserve System had some prototypes to kind of go on. And one was the German Landesbanken system and other sort of German credit institutions that were prime that were responsible for a large bit of the financing of the German growth miracle, or even actually the German development miracle, I suppose we should call it in the late 19th century. And Paul Warburg, one of the principal designers of the Fed, was an immigrant from Germany. And in particular, he was a banker immigrant from Germany who had lots of experience in the German system and understood the virtues of that system. And basically what they, the way that system was sort of kept on task was by imposing particular criteria on what kind of paper would be monetizable in this particular way. And the attribute that was most salient for our purposes right now was that it had to be productive commercial paper. Profitable wasn't good enough because as you and I know, you can profit in very unproductive ways. For one thing, of course, you know, uh, drug dealers <laughs> profit, organized crime profits. We probably don't want to call what they do productive, but even leaving that to one side, so much of the profiting that is done now in the sort of oversized financial sector isn't profiting through productive investment. It's just through speculative investment, right? Through betting on price movements in the secondary markets and the tertiary markets. So what we did for the first 22 years or so, and we can talk if you like about what happened 22 years later, but for the first 22 years or so with the Fed, the whole idea was to engage in productive lending, not merely profitable lending. Now, a second thing that kind of connects this up rather interestingly with the RFC is that, of course, you know, one person's productive might be another person's unproductive or just merely criminal even, right? So organized crime activity, I guess, is productive for the criminals or they wouldn't do it. So, you know, it's possible that what's productive for some isn't productive for others. And so we need some standard of what counts as productive. And in particular, a standard that's articulated in a manner that excludes mere speculation, since in a sense, mere speculation is productive for speculators too, since all they want to produce is profits, right? So we need some kind of an objective standard of productive investment or productivity for these purposes. And what's sort of intriguing is that the first index, the, the first national index of productive investment that the country ever used and that the Fed in particular used was designed actually by the RFC's predecessor, the War Finance Corporation 
after which the RFC was patterned in the 1930s. But the WFC, which was its predecessor, was established by the Woodrow Wilson administration to help finance the mobilization for the First World War. And it worked in conjunction with what was called, as you know, a War Industries Board. The War Industries Board also had a later, you know, sort of descendant during the Second World War. That was the War Production Board, which worked in tandem with the RFC. In any event, the War Industries Board, in conjunction with the War Finance Corporation, in the early, well, around 1917, 1918, developed an index of production, basically a way of measuring improvements in the production of stuff that actually mattered to society as a whole, rubber production, steel production, automobile production, tank production, once they started using, to, you know, all the kinds of things that were sort of important to the country, both during the First World War and then immediately thereafter. And intriguingly, the Fed used that very index as a kind of a benchmark or as a kind of partial indicator of the productiveness or otherwise of various possible projects that the Fed would be willing to, in effect, finance by monetizing, i.e. basically trading money for short-term debt instruments, right? So what I've been arguing um, is that we should basically go back to that model of the Fed, that sort of understanding of the Fed, because that was a pretty good idea, right, as far as um, the sort of Fed operations goes. Uh, and that idea was, again, partly inspired by or pushed by Paul Warburg, who had that great experience with the German banking system, which was a development banking system, a productive, not financialized banking system in those days. And also, of course, as you know, partly by Carter Glass, better known in connection with the Glass-Steagall Act, but who also had a lot of other interesting uh, views. And if we ignore the racism stuff, which was unfortunately quite prominent with him as a Virginian, but was actually a very, you know, kind of a national um, crime at the time. I mean, people North and South were pretty bloody racist. Um, it doesn't seem to have affected, it doesn't seem to have been, I don't think it infected or vitiated his vision of what a central bank should be necessarily, at least as far as the basic structure is concerned. And that basic structure, again, was something that would be locally responsive for him, it would have been locally responsive to white localities, but you can generalize the idea and just say it's going to be responsive to all localities and all communities, and one that would not concentrate financial power in just one place like New York, and furthermore would not really be basically about bailing out banks and the financial sector to the detriment of the productive sectors, right? Now, getting to what you're particularly pushing these days, like the infrastructure bank in particular, and also public banking more generally, which you've of course been ahead of the curve on. I mean, you're kind of, the, as far as I'm concerned, you're the prophet of public banking in the US. And I don't know how you managed to be so young and still be a prophet, but there you are. I and mean, you were ahead of everybody else, but so you started early. Um, you must've started in like grammar school or something, but, but in any event, the stuff that you've been pushing for so long um, in a way that really has kind of set the terms of the debate in this country for decades now, that is sort of a natural for a productive Fed to assist in these particular ways. Because as you said, the classic difficulty usually talked about under the rubric of liquidity is, you know, the shortage of literal money as distinguished from credit instruments that don't count as monetary instruments um, under certain circumstances. And, you know, since the Fed is there to monetize stuff that we as a society deem worthy of monetization, it seems pretty clear to me, as it has long, of course, seemed clear to you, 
or I would say been clear to you, um, that the Fed ought to be monetizing stuff like the issuances of public banks or maybe loans that public banks themselves extend and then pass on to, basically sell on to the Fed, another form of monetization. Of course, it's just that instead of monetizing issuances by these public banks, you would actually monetize the loans themselves that the banks extend, which is kind of the way the Fed operates in many cases now. Um, and then we could do the same with a national infrastructure bank of some sort, right? The Fed could be a primary purchaser or a purchaser of last resort or both um, in some sense, right? Um, relative to the issuances of a bank like that, and also relative to, you know, the, essentially the assets generated by an infrastructure bank like that when it itself extends credit. So in that sense, the Fed would be basically monetizing, it would be basically making a secondary market, I suppose you could say, right, in either the issuances of the infrastructure bank or in the particular loans themselves that are extended by the infrastructure bank or other forms of credit extension that are extended by the infrastructure bank. And that would put it, that would render it a productive entity again, right? Or production. Yeah, well, that seems like the obvious source of liquidity is to tap up the central bank. But how yeah. do we get them to do it? But like, what's specific? <laughs> do yeah. we need to bring a bill? Or um, oh, yeah. I know oh. it says that they, um, I forget what the terms are, but um, uh, anyway, um, qualifying commercial paper they can right, right. yeah so uh first a quick plug of a, of a, of a bill eligible i guess is the word but how do we get them i know that the um the feds discount window makes 0.25 percent loans which is excellent we'd love to tap into that but they're only for three months and you can't do infrastructure in three months so how do we get them to change the terms right. of what they're lending right now so there's sort of a two-part answer, um, and both parts of the answer are sort of fully laid out in a, in a draft bill that I'll send to you, but I'll also just say a bit about what's, what the content is. Um, so the draft bill is something I put together in the autumn. I don't know whether, I meant to send it to you and Walt, I'm not sure if I did. It's called the National Reconstruction and Continuous Development Act of 2021. The original, the first iteration of it, I did like late last summer, and then I was calling it the Invest America Act of 2020, but it's basically the same bill. Um, and essentially, you can basically make use, you basically, there are two sort of flavors, you might say. There's what can we do without legislation, and what can we do, right, with legislation. So as you know, even without legislation, under the existing Federal Reserve Act authority, in both, you know, I shouldn't say both, but in all three of sections 10B, section 13, and section 14, there are authorities to use. 10 and 14 are better than 13, I think, for our purposes, because 13 is understood as a sort of exigent circumstance provision. And you and I don't want this to be sort of pigeonholed or sort of marginalized as, oh, this is just for exigent circumstances. We want this to be a regular thing. So under the section 10B and then the section 14 authorities, there's lots of stuff that the Fed can monetize, both by way of private sector uh, commercial paper uh, and public entity paper, agency securities and the like. Now, as you noted, right, there are various basically term limitations on those various forms of paper, right? Some of it has to be three months, some six months. 
there's some form that I believe is, is allowable up to one year. And I'm trying to remember which that was. In any event, what you could do in a pinch, of course, since there's nothing in the act that prohibits rollover, is you could just say, okay, here's a, you know, we'll buy the six month stuff and we'll just refi it every six months. Or we'll just basically roll it over for as long as we have to. Now that's not likely to happen, you know, at least in a sort of an indefinite sense. I mean, I doubt that the Fed would ever with straight face say, oh, we'll just roll it over forever because that would, you know, basically attract cons uh, uh, congressional ire. It would look like it was doing an end run around its own mandate. There would be said to be some implicit understanding that you don't roll over as a matter of course, but only do so in, in exigent circumstances. And then since section 13 is the exigent circumstance portion, this must be somehow. Now, you know, none of this would be a plain meaning style argument. So, you know, the Fed could probably get away with it, even though, you know, it looks like it would be a bit shifty to do that. But in a pinch, it could. Um, but I don't think we should, you know, rest our laurels on that or bank on uh, on that. No pun intended there. Um, and even if it could, would it? I mean, how do we motivate it to want to help public banks and national infrastructure bank, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, that would that would require a number of things, right? I mean, first of all, I mean, no matter how um, zealously or vociferously or you know powerfully we or insistently we lobbied there's only so much that inherently conservatively tempered central bankers are going to go along with it. Right. I mean, unless indeed the circumstances are so exigent that they themselves see the need kind of like Powell saw the need last spring up to a point at least. Right. Um, so, you know, it really comes down to, I think, you know, getting people on the Fed board who are a little bit more open to that way of thinking. But the only way people like that are going to be approved by Congress, I suppose, uh, or ratified, let's say, in the Senate um, as, as choices of the presidents, is going to be if the Congress itself or if the Senate itself is sufficiently, you know, sort of properly minded to do that. And if it's properly minded enough to do that, right, to sort of approve appointments like that, then it's probably also going to be, you know, properly minded enough to pass legislation that just outright liberalizes the terms of the Federal Reserve Act itself. And as you know, the act has been amended any number of times. And so it's, there's no reason that we can't push as a kind of a long-term project for a bit of Fed reform done legislatively. And, and that might actually, we might be able to do that down the road. It, it's looking as though the polity as a whole is sort of gradually sort of inching more and more in, in our direction on matters financial. And so changes that might've seemed unthinkable even five years ago are kind of feeling thinkable now, even if they're not looking imminent, right? Um, the only other possibility I can think of at the moment is not something that one can recommend exactly, but would be basically just stealth. You know, like if you can make appointments to the Fed that the Senate just doesn't notice are radical appointments because they've done a good job of hiding their radicality. And then you appoint them and then they say, and then they're confirmed and then they say, all right, so we'll go ahead and, you know, sort of roll over short-term debt forever or whatever. But, you know, again, that's not a strategy that should be, that can be exactly recommended or probably shouldn't be recommended before we recommend pulling out all the stops on getting, you know, reform legislation that makes the Fed able to do this stuff. I nominate you 
<laughs> I'd love to push that, you know, if I were in a position to do it. I sort of feel like if you were appointed to an important finance policymaking position at Fed or Treasury, or if I were, or if some of our colleagues were, or if any number of us were, we might actually be able to make some stuff happen now in a way that we wouldn't have been able to even five years ago, um, even two years ago for that matter. Yeah, change <laughs> does take a while, as Pima keep reminding me, that yeah. it took 30 years for women to get the vote, you know, for the suffragettes <laughs> to actually pull up, pull up, vote for women, and we're 50% in the population. I mean, why yeah, did that I believe it's, it's still been barely over a century, right? I mean, it's insane. I mean, how does a country that celebrates almost 300 years of existence, you know, you know, go for 200 years without women voting? I mean, that's just, but yeah, that, that took a while. I've been speaking with Bob Hockett about the pivotal role the Fed could play in monetizing the infrastructure finance needs of the nation. We'll continue our conversation with Bob about other issues on our next edition of It's Our Money. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.